Our first guest is joining us now. Several Ontario universities are doing what they're doing here in BC and in every Canadian province. They're strengthening their COVID-19 vaccine policies before classes begin now in just a matter of a couple of weeks, following a recommendation from a group representing public health officers in that province. So on Thursday, the University of Toronto and Queen's uh, said, yes, unvaccinated individuals without a valid medical or human rights exemption would not be able to access their campuses. Those two schools joining a number of other Ontario universities, including the West University of Western Ontario in London, which is where we find our first guest this morning. Dr. Sam Troso is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario, who wrote a piece recently called Canadian Colleges and Universities Can Mandate COVID-19 Vaccination Without Violation charter rights. Dr. Sam Troso, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Glad to be here. It's great to have you with us, Sam. It's an interesting time, and uh, Canadian universities from coast to coast are uh, just trying to set themselves right as they can best deal with student intake now in a matter of days. Nationally, how are we doing? Well, I think Ontario uh, universities were... um Colleges and universities were the first to do it. There was, it started to spread. Uh, now Halifax um, has it. I think the main holdout that uh, is a university that people have known about is, is McGill. And there's a lot of controversy there. But I think um, there are also issues in B.C. about provincial jurisdiction. But, you know, for the most part, schools are doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting uh, uh, twist to the plot, of, and I'm sure you've heard about this, Sam, in the last couple of days, at the University of Calgary, a lot of discontent already being shown by international students who, of course, typically arrive a couple of weeks before classes begin in order to get themselves settled so they're ready by day one. So these kids are coming in from, well, uh, who knows where. Uh, and during the time that their, uh, their uh, r- r- registration was accepted and their uh, c- curriculum was identified, the, the, the classes they were going to take, et cetera. Between the time that they lined all of that up and now, the university gave professors, individual professors, professors rather, discretion to conduct their courses either in person or online. And surprise, surprise, a lot of professors decided, I'm just going to do this from home. Well, all of these international students signed up for an in-person experience, and they're out more than a few dollars in some cases, and they're very angry at the school. You can see this happening more than once too can't you yes you can see it happening uh in a lot of places it certainly was an issue in the last academic year which really should have pointed to better advanced planning and i think uh it's a very very difficult situation but we really can't uh continue with crowded face-to-face classes in situations where people are not fully vaccinated um so I just, I just, I think it's a bad situation, and the university has to do everything they can to accommodate them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and you rightly point to the fact that last year was such a different year. For example, this year in British Columbia, we know already there are a lot of second year students, Sam, going to going to school on campus for the first time. So Frosh Week here in BC is going to be two cohorts: the new kids, the right out of high school, and the first year kids going on campus for the first time. It's going to be a little busy in the first week this year. Yes, and uh, some of those O-week activities can be can be dangerous in terms of um, uh, spreading, uh, you know, spreading spreading the virus. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of caution is needed. 
So let's talk a little bit about the specifics. You you wrote this piece at theconversation.com saying Canadian colleges and universities can mandate, can, emphasize can, mandate COVID-19 vaccination without violating charter rights. And I just want to draw your attention to a class action lawsuit that was filed here in the Supreme Court of British Columbia just a few days ago by a group called Action for Canada and the Constitutional Rights Centre. And basically, Dr. Trosso, their case... Uh, rests on this. The measures, they're talking about COVID-19 and all the protocols and all the masking and the lockdowns, the whole nine yards. These measures are in violation of the Constitution and nearly every section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I'm quoting from their application. Uh, Canadians have, quote, guaranteed rights, such as Section 7 of the Charter and 1A of the Bill of Rights, quote, the right to life, liberty, and, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Close quote. The government's actions are putting our sovereignty, national security, and democracy at risk. Hyperbolic, perhaps. Uh, Theatrical, definitely. But it is a class action lawsuit they're looking for approval for. Uh, People are already saying it's vexatious and frivolous. Others are donating to a, a cause to mount the challenge. How do you think this is going to be entertained by the Supreme Court of B.C.? Well, I think a court, uh, if a court follows the established case law and uh, good principles of uh, the precautionary principle and public health concerns, it's going to it's going to get tossed. You know, it's it's one thing to throw around the conclusion that we have rights under the Constitution, but instead of just talking about Section Seven, let's look at Section Seven and see what the requirements are. Okay, that's where they're going to run into some hurdles. Yeah. Can you can you dive into that for us, uh, Doctor Trosso, please? Because uh, this yeah. is this is fundamental. This is an argument. This is this is not something that's going to just appear in a courtroom in a few days in Vancouver. This is the kind of conversation that is going on around dinner tables across the country this weekend. So let's talk about Section Seven, please. Yes. Um, the first requirement is that you have to show that the government action violated one of your interests in life, liberty, and security of the person. Okay. But in, addi- in addition to that, Section 7 also requires that this deprivation uh, not be uh, in accord with principles of fundamental justice. So there, there are two hurdles that a claimant's going to have to... Um, there, are two, there, are two, there are two hurdles that a claimant's going to have to um, show in order to uh, make a Section 7 case. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult because even though they might be able to show that there is a, generally speaking, um, a liberty or integrity of the person interest in not being subject to um, forced forced uh, medical procedures, uh, this is not a forced medical procedure. Mm-hmm. And the case, case law that talks about that can be can be distinguished. So they're going to have a hard time doing it because universities are not saying we're we're, we're going to come to your dorm room and tie you down and give you the vaccination. Sure, right. Univers- yeah, universities are saying uh, universities are saying that um, we're first of all you'll be able to apply for medical or other human rights uh, uh, exemption. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you have a choice. You you can you you can defer your registration for a term. You you can uh, and if you're an employee, you can you can seek uh, off campus assignment or you can take a leave of absence. But it's it's not it's not um, it's not coercion. Now, it's a choice and it's not a convenient choice. But 
the fact of the matter is campus mandates are not forced vaccinations. They offer choices to, to get or not get the vaccine. And there are cho- choices there. Um, we recently saw a decision in the United States arising out of the University of Indiana, which, which raised the same questions. And uh, the, the trial court and the Court of Appeal um, both denied the injunction. Um, and they said that the hard choice doesn't amount to coercion. And I, I think the Canadian court is going to um, rule the same way. Now, are you aware, Dr. Trosso, of, no, I just told you about this class action suit that they're seeking to have approved uh, in British Columbia filed a couple of days ago. Uh, that's the only one I'm aware of. You're the law professor in this conversation, sir. Are you aware of any others, similar lawsuits or actions planned across the country? Yes, there have been a, there have been a number of uh, demand letters um, floating around. There, there is a lawsuit that's now been planned uh, against Seneca College in Ontario, mm-hmm. which was the first school to uh, to implement this. And uh, I, un- I understand that form letters went out to every college and university in Canada, essentially laying out these um, objections. So I would I think what's going to happen is you're going to start to see a lot of these lawsuits being uh, being filed. And I think at some point the courts might want to um, consolidate them because there's there's no there's no reason to um, have uh, th- th- this come up and up and up again. Indeed. I think that this. Uh, yeah, I think this will go up 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 the, uh, the the appellate ladder pretty quickly. And I think I think it will be resolved. Certainly, these groups have the right to um, file these lawsuits. But the courts will um, will deal with them accordingly. Absolutely. I, I don't. I'm Sterling Fox, joined from London, Ontario, in the University of Western Ontario by Dr. Sam Trosso, who is a professor of law and a professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University. Dr. Trosso wrote a piece called Canadian Colleges and Universities Can Mandate COVID-19 Vaccination Without Violating Charter Rights. Dr. Trosso, we were talking before the breaks are about a, a class action suit that has been filed here in British Columbia in the past few days. You note that there are others already going on uh, in, in Canada. You're hoping that uh, once there are enough of them, the courts will combine them and rule uh, sort of universally on them all. But we've already had a couple of cases in which the government was the, the right of the government to interfere with things like going to church, for example. We've had cases in British Columbia uh, in which the government's ability to close down religious observations and services for example, was challenged. Remind us of that, please. Well, there's been a number of different incidents where uh, the government has been trying to enforce occupancy limits um, in, in churches. Um, there was a case uh, in British Columbia involving public health orders limiting gatherings for religious services. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, 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 thing, the thing about it is, in those cases, the public health officer did not issue any type of ban until they had demonstrable scientific evidence that less restrictive uh, uh, alternatives were, were not were not going to work. Um, and I think I think the courts, especially if they're being asked to rule in a on a preliminary injunction, which actually stops it, they're going to balance the risk of harms that are involved. So I think it's very unlikely that um, that would turn out different. There was also the case in Newfoundland where a woman was denied entry um, she wanted to go to her mother's funeral, right. um, but she was denied entry, um, and the, the court ruled that there was a very, very pressing objective in uh, prevent, protecting people from illness 
and 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 death, and uh, she was she she was unsuccessful. She um, lost the case. Yes. Now keep in keep in mind that um, if 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 a if a group goes into court to challenge this, the first thing they're going to do is ask for a, a preliminary order um, staying the operation of the uh, mandate. Uh. And one of the things one of the things the court would look at is sort of like the balance of the equities, and they would consider the amount of harm that could happen on, on, on either side. And I think, I think in, this, in this situation, there's a very, very important difference between, the, for example, the blood transfusion cases mm-hmm. and the vaccine mandate case. Because in the case of a blood transfusion, um, the harm would come to the individual. They don't get the medical treatment they need. They're going to die or become very sick. Um, but here it's going to spread to other people. Um, and the other thing you have to show in order to get an, in, uh, an interim an interim injunction is uh, on the balance of probabilities, you have a likelihood of uh, succeeding. And mm-hmm. I just don't think they'd be able to make that uh, that case here. So you're but you're saying vaccine mandates. It's interesting because some would say you're hair splitting, but that's what lawyers do for a living. Usually quite a good one. But you say vaccine mandates are not forced vaccination. It it's it, it sounds like it's hair splitting, Sam, because uh, the word mandate sounds so compulsory. It does. It does sound compulsory. And there, there is a there's a very serious uh, issue here that if you want to come to our campus, Oh, but the P- Toronto Blue Jays just issued a, a statement saying uh, you're going to have to do this to get into the stadium. Um, if you if you want to come into this facility, you're going to have to have this vaccination. Right. Um, and there, there are going to be exceptions to that, but they're going to be very limited exceptions. And and by the way, having having the uh, vaccine requirement does not eliminate the need for people to remain masked. Mm-hmm. And it does not eliminate the need for uh, institutions to have reasonable uh occupancy limits in, in places like labs and uh, and uh, classrooms and libraries and cafeterias. Uh, there's uh, uh, back to the uh, the religious observation case here in British Columbia for a moment, if you will, Dr. Troso. And because I, I'm referencing not only that case, but next door in Alberta, a pastor who was actually arrested and jailed because he refused to uh, bow, if you will, to the uh, Dr. Hinshaw in Alberta's p- public health order with respect to at the time. Now, we're going back a while when there was a lot more lockdown prevalent period. And this guy just... Uh, held services anyway and ended up getting himself arrested and going to court and the whole bit. And of course, there is, in addition to that component, which is, of course, the emotional attachment to religious and faith observation and the ability to do so uh, completely unfettered, thank you very much, in a free country, uh, there's all of that. And then there's just this incredible layer of emotion going on that really makes everything so much more difficult. Uh, Is that uh, is that prev- as prevalent on campus, you, uh, do you sense, with the returning kids this fall, as it is elsewhere in the country? I, I, don't, think, I don't think it is. I think most, most people coming to university um, probably have an understanding of the congregate settings that they're, they're in. And believe, believe me, the, the, the students that are coming to university for the first time, they're worried. Mm-hmm. Their parents are worried. Um, this is, they're not looking at this primarily from the point of view, I want to be able to run around the dormitories and go to parties and go to my lab uh, and not have a, a mask or vaccines. I think the students are very, very well aware 
of uh, the risks that are that, that that are involved. And I think most of them are most of them who are coming in probably are either already fully vaccinated or if not fully, they're going to get it soon. Um, by the way, universities would be under a very very strong obligation to make it very easy for people on campus to get that second vaccine. Oh sure. And uh, I know I know at my school they're setting they're setting up clinics, and I think this is this is the best practice. What about staff? Uh, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're a professor, and of course you're going to be in front of a group of varying sizes as you go through your academic exercises. But what about all those other people on campus, the employees of the university, from office staff to janitorial people? I mean, a university is a huge community, and there are a lot of employees. Is this compulsory for those people, and what's the reaction been from them? Yes, it, it, applies, it applies to people attending campus. It doesn't apply to just one group. That would raise a claim that it was somehow discriminatory. Um, at, at my campus, for example, it applies to all faculty, staff, students, and visitors who are coming um, onto campus. At uh, at my school, the uh, faculty uh, association was was very much in favor of having this instituted. The people that work on college campuses understand the risks that they're involving, and they do not want to take sickness home. Uh, at the same time, we have a lot of faculty members and staff members who, while they're going through all of this at work, they have children in schools. Mm-hmm. And there's so much uncertainty in Ontario right now about what that's going to look like when school opens. And I've spoken to so many staff members and so many faculty members with children who are just really worried about this. And um, it, 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 is, it is something that just needs to be um, dealt with and at least at least when they go to work they're going to know if they're at a good, good school like western mm. university of western ontario that uh, they're, they're going to have some protection indeed and and i i suppose that it, it's it's such a delicate balancing act in terms of, of understanding the need and, and we talked earlier about this whole notion of the principles of fundamental justice and this is again what a lot of these class action groups are looking at they say that everyone has the right to life liberty and security of the person i'm quoting now from the charter of rights and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice They're hanging their hats on that phrase, Sam. What what did they see in the principles of fundamental justice that opens the door to success in their suit against the government? Well, I don't think they've they've done a good job reading the uh, the texts or or, or the or the or the case law on fundamental justice. They're they're just throwing this around as as a term. Um, In order to show this inconsistency with principles of fundamental justice, they have to somehow show that the, man- the mandate is arbitrary, mm-hmm. that it's overbroad, that it's disproportionate. So an example of it being overbroad would be to say, well, this applies to people who aren't even coming onto campus, like distance ed students and, uh, and alumni. That would be overbroad. Right. Um, it, it, there's no overbreadth here. It's, it, this, is, this is precisely tailored to, to fit the uh, situation on campus. So I think it's easy to throw around buzzwords like uh, Oh, fundamental justice. Mm-hmm. But when you when you get under the hood of the case law and really parse it and look at what the what the courts have said over the years, they're going to have a very very difficult time showing that the principles of fundamental justice are um, are violated. So even if even if somehow they're able to make out a liberty or, or uh, personal integrity uh, case, they've still got to go over that 
um, other other hurdle. And as these cases go forward, Dr. Troso, I'm very much looking forward to the opportunity to be able to, to uh, tap uh, into your uh, legal mind uh, and uh, perhaps get an opinion uh, as, uh, as this uh, continues to unfold. It's definitely of national interest, and it's terribly important case law. Thanks for this this morning, Sam. It's been a real pleasure having you with us, and I'd really welcome the opportunity to do this again. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me. And Marvin Washington is on the line. Professor Washington joining us uh, from Portland. Uh, He is also a former professor of sports management at the University of Alberta. And one of the many individuals were called upon to comment in a piece that we saw recently entitled, Major Sports Teams Could Soon Lose Money and Fans If They Fail to Adopt COVID-19 Vaccine Passports. And they went around and canvassed a number of academics, including our next guest, uh, Professor Marvin Washington joins us from Portland State University. Professor Washington, Marvin, good morning, and thanks for being with us, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, you have spent a lot of time at the University of Alberta. You're very familiar with the Canadian sports scene. We'll start up here first, and then we'll extend the conversation south of the line. But, Marvin, let's talk about, uh, you talk specifically about the CFL, and there are only two teams left in the CFL that uh, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders uh, are one of only two teams with no COVID vaccination requirements for fans, the other being the Edmonton Elks. So let's talk about that, especially through the prism of what just happened to Edmonton. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is where it's it's such a tough situation. You had a season where you had no games and no fans. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're under this uh, uh, season, this period of COVID, where most people are uh, aware of how you can catch it, how you might get it, how it's going to be transmitted. And now you, the team, are trying to convince me to come back and sit in the stadium with 30,000 of my closest, you know, strangers. Mm -hmm. And then cheer, and then yell, and then high-five the person next to you because your team just scored a a touchdown. Right. All of that requires a level of trust. And I think that uh, what the COVID vaccine is trying to do in theory is give individuals a level of trust that the stranger sitting next to them has taken similar precautions they've taken. Right. Either a negative test or they've taken the vaccine. Now, of course, you know, we're not, I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor. Can you get it with those things? Of course. But we've taken all the precautions we could to give some sense of trust. Right. And that's why I think teams and leagues and restaurants now and airlines have been pushing for something like this. We need to get trust back in the system so that the fan can do what the fan wants to do, which is come to the game, stand in line and get a beer and a hot dog, high-five the stranger next to them, right. and cheer at the top of their lungs as loud as possible. Let off just a little bit of steam, and yeah. don't you think there's just a little to let off after 17 exactly. months of confinement? So, yeah, yeah. you want to be able to sort of blow your stack and, and relax in the process, but let's talk about the Edmonton Elks specifically, Marvin, because they're in a real pickle. They played the BC Lions here uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and then they went back 
back home to Edmonton, where you used to live, and spent a lot of time mm-hmm. at the University of Alberta and discovered a dozen of their guys had COVID-19. And since then, even more staff and players have been identified as carrying the, the, the virus. Now, of course, immediately, the BC Lions organization flipped their wigs and went, oh my gosh, what, what do we do now? Fortunately, with maximum testing protocols in place, we dodged the bullet. Edmonton and the CFL have done something, and I, I, for your comment, please, uh, the, the league, the Canadian Football League has decided that if 85, under 85% of players and personnel on, involved in any franchise are unvaccinated, uh, and then and the team forfeits a game because they're unable to play due to that specific reason, then the team will accept a one nothing loss. That's a forfeit. And if mm-hmm. the players, are, if 80, under 85% of the players are unvaccinated, nobody gets paid. That's hitting you where it, ha- where it matters. Yeah, yeah, and this just shows, and we forget this, we forget that athletes, independent of uh, how much they make, independent of what they do on the field or the ice or the pitch, are human. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we all live in the world in 2021. There is a population of humans that somehow are uh, reluctant to get this vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm a lead, I'm like, I can't have you work from home as a team. So I can't separate you that way. You guys all have to come to work. And so what can I do to incentivize you coming to work? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure the CFL pushed it as far as they can in the face of union, you know, management, labor negotiations. And that was as far as they pushed it. And I think that the pushing was, what can we do in addition to all the, you know, the science and the experts coming in and saying it's safe and it's good for you? What can we do to make these have real consequences? Mm-hmm. I think there was a case in Texas where some nurses had, to, had a similar situation. The hospital required them to get vaccinated. The nurses says, we don't want to do that. The hospital said, well, we can sort of fire you. It went to court. The hospital won. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is the same thing. And, the, and I think the Elks just represents almost exactly what you don't want. Well, teams, I-, I think teams and leagues really want either the league CFL or the province to sort of make the decision Mm -hmm. because then the team is not the bad person here. The team is saying, look, we are a team. We are in this province. Here are the rules of the province. And then the fans go, that makes sense because I live in the province too, or I'm driving into the province. If I have to have these rules at other places, have these rules here. So the Elks clearly want the province make a decision right but and the problem is they making the decision that's right and, and next door in saskatchewan the green riders yeah. are in the same yeah. uh, the same boat because uh, the, mm-hmm. the mo government in saskatchewan is also quite reluctant to move on this now yeah. just by comparison standards mm-hmm. you're you're mm-hmm. in portland so the seahawks mm-hmm. are just up the road a little bit yeah. well, what is the mm-hmm. nfl uh, what are their policies yeah. vis-a-vis returning because they're already in preseason do they have yeah. the same are they applying mm-hmm. the same pressure mm-hmm. on their players mm-hmm. as the cfl is up here they are, and what, they're, what they've been doing and the battle that the NFL has been having is uh, protocols for social distancing and protocols for testing. And so if you are vaccinated, then you have looser restrictions in terms of how close to strangers you can be. You have loose restrictions in terms of how often you have to get tested mm-hmm. than if you are unvaccinated. And obviously on the team, that means that I may get to go places you don't get to go. Right. I may get to do things you don't get to do. And that has been, it seems like effective except for a couple of teams. 
Well, there are teams reaching 100% vaccination. I've heard rate. that, yes. And there are elite players on the team saying, we want you to get to 100% of vaccination rate. Why? Because we want to get some normalcy, too. The fans want normalcy in terms of the fans want to be able to cheer and scream. We want normalcy. I want to be able to go around and do what I can normally do, but I can't do that because I care about the team. And the last thing I would want, I, in the, we lose sight of this, right? Independent of how we can talk about the Elks. There are 14 people, I think, the last count. That's right. That, that are positive. Yes. And so their lives are disrupted, which means, and some of them are like only here by themselves because their families are not in Edmonton. That's right. And so I can just only imagine being stuck in a room somewhere for 10 days. And we forget that. And it's easy to sort of lose sight of that in all of this. But I think that's what the league and that's what the team doesn't want. Talking professionals. Because I think the team is like, okay, when will we get fans back? Because now there's another blow. Now we actually have this vivid reminder. So every Edmontonian fan that goes to the next home game will be reminded of this. We're enjoying a conversation with Professor Marvin Washington, who is a professor of sports management at Portland State University after many years uh, of him doing the same job at the University of Alberta. One of many uh, academics consulted in a, a piece that was entitled Major Sports Teams Could Soon Lose Money and Fans If They Fail to Adapt COVID-19 Vaccine Passports. And Marvin, we were talking about the two Canadian football teams that have not implemented this. Let's flip the coin for a second if you don't mind sir and we'll talk about the teams that have and the leagues that have in canada the winnipeg jets the calgary flames the edmonton oilers the vancouver canucks for starters say if you want to go to a hockey game in the 21 22 season you're going to need to show proof of being vaccinated or you're not getting in that's pretty firm yes it is uh, and i think that that's uh a positive step, not just for the team and the league, but also for the city and also for the vaccinating eff- the vaccination efforts uh, worldwide, right? If you think about what they're saying, they're saying, let's be a role model. Let's create some incentive. You like hockey. You want to play. Everyone, or you want to watch. Everyone else around you, they want to know that they're as safe as you are. Mm-hmm. So why not just do this? So imagine the person that's sort of on the fence. Being a hockey fan might be the thing that tips them over. And that's what I think a sport uh, league, a sport team as a role model can do, mm-hmm. in addition to getting fans in the stands. Because, again, uh, I, saw, uh, I saw a survey, and what it looked like was that uh, there, for some people in the U.S., uh, they had, it was like, what are the list of activities you're willing to do? And it was amazing to see the variation. So it feels like everyone is deciding where to take the risk. Oh, I'll go to a concert, but I don't do restaurants. Right. I'll do restaurants, but I won't go to the, a movie theater. I'll do a movie theater, but I won't do this. Right. If you're the team, you're like, I want you to say yes to hockey. So I want you to say yes to hockey and whatever else you might do. A vaccine will give you some sense of that. If you don't want the vaccine, then just take a negative test. Because we don't want one person coming into the stadium into the, uh, the, the, uh, the stadium and then infecting everyone else or possibly or making it nervous. Mm-hmm. The, the analogy could be, imagine if we were at a comedy club and if you, again, you got to think back to when that would have been yep. 17, 18 months ago, when a comedy club, the tables are close together. 
the energy from the comedian is awesome, and we're all just laughing away. We're not conscious of the fact that we're laughing because everyone's laughing. Right. As soon as we have this, this worry that, is that person behind me spitting on me? Is that person in front of me that's yelling? Am I getting something from... Because we now all know how this thing gets transmitted. Mm-hmm. And so given that, the venue is trying to say, don't worry about that. Everyone in here is as safe as possible. Marvin, I'm also concerned, or just for your comment again, but you were talking mm-hmm. earlier about Edmonton and the Edmonton CFL franchise now called the Elks and mm-hmm. how they haven't they haven't established uh, mm-hmm. uh, that vaccine, compulsory vaccine for their fans. Mm-hmm. And you said they're waiting for the government of Alberta to, be, to do the leading. But at the same time, and just a little pop across town, the Oilers have taken arbitrarily and said, no, no vaccine. Uh, certificates, no hockey f- uh, enjoyment mm-hmm. for you. So there's two mm-hmm. franchises in the same city yeah. with two completely yep. different approaches. Yeah, and I think this to me sort of uh, goes back to NHL versus CFL. I think as the NHL, if I'm the Oilers, if I am, uh, let's reverse it the other way. I'm the Oilers, I'm the Las Vegas Knights. Uh, fans want to go up and down, which means fans might want to eventually want to cross that border. Sure. As fans start crossing their border, the league is like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Because the last thing we want is to have to shut down because we find out that some stadium was a super spreader event. And those things are much of a bigger deal when you play every second, every third day than when you play once a week. And so I can imagine the, the Canadian teams all got together and said, what do we want? We want to play people other than ourselves. Yeah, really. <laughs> and so if we're going to stop doing this, only the only Canadian teams play Canadian teams. We don't want to do what the uh, Blue Jays did. We don't want to have to move to the U.S. That's right. We don't want to do what the Raptors have to move to the U.S. Mm-hmm. What can we do? Because they are in leagues that have more U.S. participants than Canadian participants. True. The CFL is just so self-contained, mm-hmm. and it's self-contained inside of the country. It's also a ticket-driven league in terms of if they don't get fans to come and watch the Elks play, they don't get money. Right? That team won't make any money because mm-hmm. the television contract's not nearly enough. Right. And so, and so I, I can see why the NHL in terms of the the Oilers, the Flame, would have made a different decision. Right, because it's an international their, league. Yeah, and they're thinking about okay, if we for some reason have to shut down a game because we had an outbreak, literally an outbreak in the actual stands, and then they have to stop, do extra cleaning or something, they miss a game or something, well, that influences the NHL, not just us now. Absolutely. Professor Washington, a real pleasure to have you on the program this morning, sir. I appreciate your energy and your mm-hmm. uh, your your expertise as, a, as an academic involved in teaching sports management and understanding the, the concept so clearly. I, I do appreciate your time. It's great to have you on the show. According to a poll from commissioned by Insights West just last month, 86% of British Columbians are concerned about declining wild salmon stocks and 75% of us support transition away from open net pen fish farms. Uh, Joining us now from the Wild Salmon Salmon Alliance is Bob Chamberlain, chief of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob, good morning. Welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Good morning, Sterling. Really glad to be back. These are uh, quite uh, impressive numbers. 86% of us concerned about declining wild salmon stocks. Uh, Three out of every four of us know about and have some thoughts about open pen uh, fish farming. How do we connect the dots 
how do we make politicians running, and you've been a politician running in this part of the world for office in previous years, how do you get to those candidates and get them to talk about this issue among all of the other things they want to talk about during this election? Well, uh, there's an organization called Wild First, and I encourage people to go to wildfirst.ca. And uh, we have a pledge uh, that all MPs are being sought in British Columbia to sign uh, to act upon the dwindling stocks. And what I know and believe that our uh, BC's wild salmon stocks are closing in on extinction. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is make sure that every candidate speaks about it as we have uh, an opportunity here, especially with the last round of budget announcement, where we can actually steer what perhaps will happen post-election. But, you know, we want to believe everything that's being said on the campaign trail, but sadly, we've all been disappointed before. Well, and you show full disclosure here, my guest has been a candidate. Uh, Was it federally or provincially you ran for the NDP in the Nanaimo area? Was that provincially, Bob? Uh, no, I ran for in the last federal election for okay. the NDP. So you know, as well as anyone listening, that candidates for whatever party uh, get their list of talking points from headquarters, and these are the issues we want you to focus on in this election for our campaign. We want you to get our leader and yourself elected, and blah, 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 and here's what we want you to zoom in on and stick with for the next five weeks as the case of this campaign. And Salmon, I doubt are anywhere on any party's list anywhere in British Columbia. Well, I mean, this is true. I mean, the parties do have uh, certain commitments that they've made in their in their campaign. But I, I encourage everyone to take a look at the party they're considering and have a look at their uh, uh, what they're committing to. And you'll see, uh, again, full disclosure, I'm NDP. Uh, they've got a very clear statement about salmon, about land-based closed containment transition. But other parties do as well, including the Liberal government, mm-hmm. who made this commitment during the last election. So what I think is, when there are open forums, when there's opportunity to, to question any and all MPs running, and we have to you know, be mindful that salmon uh, is important to all of British Columbia. So I think it's our job as voters to be informed and to pose these questions and ensure that we have uh, candidates on the record about where they stand. Bob, the Liberals would prefer that we consider this to be a referendum on their management of the pandemic. Full stop. They don't want us really discussing too much else. But if we were to use the word management, their their word, and expand it to basically anything else in the economy, including the fishery, uh, then it could turn into a very different kind of referendum, couldn't it? Well, it very much could. And I think, you know, the referendum, it's not just on the Liberal government, but every sitting MP, because this is an opportunity for accountability and transparency and demonstrating what actions an MP has taken for their riding. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're talking about salmon. And, you know, I think about Gord Johns and the excellent work that he's done on, on FOPO, the Standing Fisheries Committee. He's been very strong voice for wild salmon for Supreme Court law being implemented. And this is the benefit of having, you know, five parties standing in the House of Commons as you participate on committees where the work gets done. But we need to take 
such good work as the, the fishery standing committee ensure the next government implements what's there mm-hmm. because there are commitments and in fact there are uh, we, and we've talked about this with greg taylor and others uh, the minister of fisheries and oceans bernadette jordan has made a commitment for example uh, with respect to uh, reducing the number of fish farms and and, uh, uh, and there was a rather significant number announced from ottawa and then the local uh offices of the same ministry uh, saw the numbers as being quite different and quite a bit less or lower than was originally announced. A big disconnect, obvious to everyone, I guess, except those involved between Fisheries Ottawa and the Fisheries Department uh, people in B.C. Well, when you consider the the, uh, Fisheries Standing Committee and the recommendations that are found there, it speaks of an an enhanced role out here in the Pacific for the management of fishery stocks here. It is recommending the inclusion of First Nations. It's recommending the inclusion of the provincial government. Of course, the provincial government makes decisions on watersheds, etc., which definitely have an impact on the ability of wild salmon to rebound. But what we need to do is all of us recognize that and investment in wild salmon, we need a once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully, uh, long-term commitment to see wild salmon return. And for those running for MP, I mean, you have to consider the uh, the Aboriginal rights that are, that are guaranteed in the Constitution, the Sparrow decision, and so on, that we have an opportunity for broad-stroke reconciliation with First Nations and benefit the environment, benefit British Columbia, uh, the economy and do what's right for wild salmon and of course southern resident killer whales mm-hmm. bob do you think in turn and this is a, a strange question to ask but the first nations vote uh with respect to this election will uh, because the priorities will be clearly different from other voting blocks in the population uh will there be will salmon be a primary consideration well, I'm certainly uh, advocating for that to occur because we have a track record to look at. We know that the, the Conservative government under Stephen Harper just laid waste to the Fisheries Act in terms of protection of salmon. We've had the Liberal governments wake up very late in the day in terms of the fish farm impacts. And then we've got the NDP that have always been very strong about the, the need to protect Aboriginal rights and, and, the, and BC wild salmon. But we have to look at track record. And when people are stepping up to want your vote, mm-hmm. you know, we have to ask some tough questions. Like, were you involved in committee? Were you asking the pertinent questions during question period? And, of course, in, you know, Nanaimo Ladysmith, that isn't the case with uh, MP uh, Paul Manley because it didn't have official party status. But we have to consider these things. And, you know, the good work of Rachel Blaney, where she was advocating to have a transition plan for for, uh, for the fish farm workers, which the Liberal government didn't accomplish. So we need and to... Many, many, uh, feel it, many feel it was supposed to be hand in glove with the decision on Discovery Islands, which many people believe. Yeah. So basically, the pressure needs to be applied by the voter. It's up to the voter to make the politician or the would-be politician uh, uh, articulate positions that perhaps they're even under orders not to go there. Thanks for this, Bob. It's important to to have the, the, the understanding that we can influence this simply by asking the tough questions. Good to have you with us again this morning. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for your interest in Wild Salmon. Wild, Have a great day. Wildfirst.ca is the website that Bob spoke of. Check it out. That's Bob Chamberlain from the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. As we turn our attention now to a far more local but equally important issue, we are joined on the line from the Environmental Law Center by Calvin Sanborn, who is an assistant teaching professor and legal director of the Environmental Law Center at the University of Victoria. Professor Sanborn, Calvin, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to have you with us. Uh, any comments? First of all, we're going to talk about this petrochemical thing up in Prince George, but you're the environmental law guy. Hurricanes obviously have your undivided attention. Any thoughts this morning on Ida? Yeah, that, uh, that what we're going to talk about, the proposed petrochemical plastic plant in Prince George, uh, is directly related because um, if, if we continue to build fossil fuel infrastructure like this uh, plastics plant that's proposed in Prince George, uh, we will be perpetuating a world of wildfire and hurricanes. And, and so there, make no mistake about it, we are in a climate change emergency. There's a connection between the wildfire smoke that people have been breathing in British Columbia all summer and, and Hurricane Ida, which is going to have a storm surge bigger than anything since the 1850s. Apparently, yeah. And the connection is uh, climate change. And we've got to do something about it. And right now, the B.C. government has a decision to make that's directly related to it. Well, yeah, it's interesting. This is the same government that it continues to struggle with something called Site C that we may have a chance to talk about before we're finished. But let's zoom in on this $5.6 billion uh, three-part petrochemical plastics facility being considered uh, inside the city limits of Prince George. What's going on up there? What are they, what are they proposing? What do they want to do? Okay, so what they're proposing to do is build three different industrial plants. So they will take natural gas, and they'll need a lot more natural gas for this. Uh, One plant will pull out propane and butane, and then it will take the remaining natural gas and send it to the ethylene plant that's now being assessed under the Environmental Assessment Act. And then that plant will send its product to the plastics plant to be made into into plastic. Mm -hmm. But but our problem is that if this complex gets uh, established, that it will sabotage the fight against climate change. Because we are now in a situation where the International Energy Agency has put out a statement saying we will not meet our Paris targets on climate change. We will not, cannot meet it if we continue to build fossil fuel infrastructure. And that's not me, some environmental advocate, saying that. That's the head of the International Energy Agency, which is a, a consortium of 38 different countries, all the major uh, industrial economies in the world saying that. Who's uh, behind this uh, Prince George uh, mega project, Calvin? Well, it's uh, a company, West, uh, West Coast Olefins Limited, but it's part of uh, a general oil and gas industry move here. See, they've, they've got a problem. They've got a glut of natural gas. They've got too much natural gas. And so the solution is that uh, they figured that the world needs more plastic. And so uh, they're proposing plastics plants in Louisiana, in St. James, Louisiana, in Pennsylvania, and in Prince George okay. uh, to use up that natural gas. But the problem is that Scientific American recently had an article uh, stating that, uh, that plastics uh, plants are the next big uh, carbon super polluters because plastics basically is fossil fuel. Uh, 
and that and Scientific American said dealing with climate change means dealing with plastics, which is why we're saying to the government of BC, at least you have to have a really comprehensive assessment of what's going on with this proposal. You can't go with just a routine assessment. There needs to be an independent panel of experts doing public hearings to take a good look at a problem where a regional director, a former regional director of the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States has stated that of all these new plastics plants that are proposed, that if even a quarter of them get approved, that we won't be able to deal with climate change because climate uh, because plastics plants basically are what has been called a carbon bomb. So we know that in Louisiana, uh, in St. James, Louisiana, there was a, a petrochemical plastics proposal that's been going through assessment there. Right. And just two weeks ago, they put the brakes on that to, to take a closer look at that proposal. And in that proposal, we know because they've done some calculations there, that that facility was going to be the equivalent of putting 2.8 million new cars on the road permanently. We need to know how many cars is this this, uh, proposal in British Columbia. Yeah, I need to take a break here, and we'll talk about the assessment process. It's actually a two-part question because there's the assessment process that typically would take place, and there's the assessment process that you prefer would take Mm -hmm. place, and that's at the provincial and federal level. This is all going to be built within the city limits in Prince George. Though its power is limited, what does the city have to say about this? Well, that's a good question. I know that um, my clients too close to home are going to be going to the city and, and asking the city to, uh, to take a position of, of asking for a full process. You know, there's, there, we're not saying necessarily stop it right now, but, but take a good look at it. Like, look before you leap. Mm-hmm. Because we're living in a province where we've been breathing smoke all summer, where uh, the province has spent $500 million on wildfire fire, uh, protection just in the last several weeks, uh, where we've lost 850,000 hectares of forest, where the wine industry is threatened by smoke, where the tourism is, industry in the Okanagan has been obliterated mm-hmm. this summer, where the, you know, the fisheries industry, because of the salmon, uh, because of warming waters, we're losing salmon. We're, we're looking at the forest industry that's been devastated by the the destruction of the mountain pine beetle, like most of the pine trees in the, in the province have been killed by climate change. Like, there's huge economic losses here. So at least take a good look at this thing. Our guest joining us from the Environmental Law Center at the University of Victoria is its director, Calvin Sanborn, talking to us this morning about a proposed petrochemical plastics facility up in Prince George worth over $5.5 billion. Uh, and uh, Calvin, just before we get to the review process Processes. Uh, the company that's uh, advancing this proposal, this Calgary company, West Coast Olefins, makes an employment uh, statement that uh, is is difficult to ignore. They say in a, in, a, in an area where the economy is changing and where the forestry that used to be the principal provider of employment is reducing its capacity to do so, uh, this project would provide at least one thousand uh, jobs beyond that's going forward. Now it's beyond the construction phase, it would also provide 1,000 permanent jobs, a reality, an economic reality that's difficult to ignore. Yeah, and, and that's why there needs to be an independent panel. That there really does need to be an economist on that panel to analyze jobs. 
because, okay, there's on the one side, we've got a thousand jobs, and we've also got thousands of jobs that were lost this summer to mm-hmm. climate change. But in addition to that, there needs to be an economist, and we asked for this in the submission, to look at what, how many jobs uh, would be created in an alternative economic development plan for Prince George. Because if, if you have heavy industry, you're foreclosing other jobs. Like Prince George is becoming a bit of a high-tech center mm-hmm. right now with the university up there. Yep. And so the, the question is, is it more jobs with a greener future for Prince George, or is it more jobs with, uh, with this plant? And the other thing that that economist will look at very carefully is that economist will take the words of Mark Carney very seriously, the head of the Bank of Canada, the head of the Bank of England, who has said that investments in fossil, fossil fuels uh, put uh, societies at risk. He said that these investments are likely to become, quote, worthless, and that the assets are likely to become stranded because you know, there's hurricanes today in Louisiana. There's forest fires in British Columbia this summer. There's floods in India. The world is going to act on this. We have to act on it as a community to, to protect our grandchildren. But um, if once that action is taken, these fossil fuel infrastructures are likely to become worthless. Like the uh, vice president of the European Union has said that uh, they're going to become worthless, that people should not be investing in uh, in fossil fuel infrastructure. It's a very, very high-risk investment right now because the world is going to react. We have to we, because we can't have more. You know, the scary thing here, Sterling, is that this summer may be one of the, the coolest summers you will have in the rest of your life mm. and the rest of your grandkids' lives. This planet is getting hotter and hotter. The climate is getting more and more devastating. We are going to act on it, and those thousand jobs are going to disappear when, when government says, okay, they agree with the International Energy Agency saying that uh, we cannot meet Paris targets if, with new fossil fuel infrastructure, when it's inevitably shut down, those thousand jobs are going to disappear. You're going to have a city that's not going to be attracting high tech, and you're going to have people across British Columbia breathing wildfire smoke. Because if we don't deal with climate change, we will be perpetuating a world of wildfire. Calvin, let's talk about the process, because there are two, one that you would like to see and one that is already happening. There is an automatic environmental review. Put, uh, the, com, it's, it's compulsory. Is it a federal or a provincial review, or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, this is a provincial review that's happening under the Environmental Assessment Office. So the officials in the Environmental Assessment Office, government employees, are doing the review. We are asking for an independent review. So not government employees. We're asking for experts to be appointed. And we need a health expert because uh, Sarnia and, uh, in Ontario has petrochemical plants mm-hmm. that's known as Cancer Alley. In St. James, Louisiana, where they're buckling down for the, the hurricane today, that's Cancer Alley because of the petrochemical plant. So we need a health expert to look at the higher rates of breast cancer that are happening in and around those plants and, and those kinds of air pollution uh, issues. We need a, a climate change expert, and we need an economist to address that big issue, that thousand jobs, because a thousand jobs 
that's that's a lot of jobs. Indeed. But so now, you, way you, more jobs may be lost in the long run. You've uh, you so petitioned to look at it. You petitioned the Minister of the Environment for uh, this revised format of hearing, uh, as opposed to the standard government employee hearing that uh, probably is already underway. What response or uh, have you heard, if any? And what appetite do you suspect there is for such a change in the approval process? Yeah, I I think that there the minister will do it uh because it doesn't make any sense not to do it the uh the routine process uh shouldn't go forward for Prince George's largest industrial project ever we've had lots of these independent panels appointed and and it's the the questions are so big it's like you say the thousand jobs needs to be considered sure. against the thousands of other jobs that may be lost and and all the jobs being lost in the wine industry right now to climate change and and the tourism industry that's shut down in the okanagan and and the fishing industry so we do need an economist to look seriously at it and to do that you're not going to get that kind of in-depth economic analysis and analysis of of what are the long-term impacts going to be on climate change and on plastic pollution. We haven't even talked about the whole thing. Do we really need more plastic? Like, this will perpetuate the plastic crisis as well. So So we we need a panel. Has the minister got back to you or anyone in the environment ministry? Uh, No, but we're looking forward to it. And uh, again, a final question. We're almost out of time. Is there an appetite for such a thing, or are you going to be, uh, uh, we're fine with what we have? Well, I would, I would hope that there's an appetite for it because uh, there's too much writing on this. You know, if Scientific American is saying that, that plastics may be the straw that breaks the camel's back on climate change, we, we have to carefully look at this thing. This right. is a $5.6 billion yeah. decision that may contribute to whether or not we perpetuate wildfires in British Columbia and hurricanes in Louisiana. Calvin, thanks for this this morning. We'll uh, keep a sharp watch on response, if any, from the Ministry of the Environment. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you more as this project unfolds one way or another. Thanks for this this morning. Hey, thanks, Sterling. Bye now. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.